deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Flushed out, rolling right, trying to make a play, trying to dig to the corner, trying to get to the pylon. He turns the corner, and he looks like he's in for a touchdown run by Will Greer, out rushing the pursuit to score to the right pylon, and the Gators lead six to nothing. Danny Boone Williams flares out of the backfield as Tolls looks to throw, and he's hit, and he's dropped with a great sack. Oh my, John Bullard off the outside with a sack. There's the snap and a pitch to Taylor. Taylor up the right side. He's in for the touchdown. Gators, Taylor made. And the Gators pad the lead. It's now 13-3. It was a tight one in the Bluegrass State, but the Gators used a stout defensive performance to outlast Kentucky 14-9 and gave Jim McElwain his first SEC victory while extending the nation's longest active winning streak to 29 games. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Coming up today, we'll get you set for one of the great rivalries in college football, Florida and Tennessee. You'll hear about the most dangerous thing that Florida safety Nick Washington has ever done, learn more about the development of the big guys up front from offensive line coach Mike Summers, and find out why the challenge will be a big one both literally and figuratively against the Vols from Scott Carter and Jim McElwain. Plus, you'll have your latest chance to win free Gator gear in our Gator Tales Trivia Challenge. But first, we look at the history of one of the most heated rivalries in the SEC and in the nation with the voice of the Gators, Mick Hubert. Florida's won 10 straight against Tennessee, dating back to Urban Meyer's first SEC game in 2005, which matches the 10-game winning streak that the Vols had to open the series beginning in 1916. But these teams have only met a total of 44 times, with over half of those taking place in the last 25 years. That's why Mick is quick to point out that the rivalry was truly born around the same time a certain native of Johnson City, Tennessee, returned to Gainesville. This really wasn't much of a rivalry at all for two charter members of the SEC until they got going in 1990. Uh, The league was still in intact. There were no divisions yet, but we went up there and played them in 1990, and Kirk Kirkpatrick was a tight end we had. Caught 55 passes that year. He was an outstanding tight end, but Kirk dropped a touchdown pass in the end zone right before the half, which would have given the Gators the lead in the game, and Dale Carter returned the second half kickoff for a touchdown for Tennessee. Dale Carter went on, played many years with the Kansas City Chiefs. That was a 14-point swing, just bam, bam, bridging the halves, and they went on and routed us 45-3. to and I remember I had to do a thing that broadcast the, the, the ramped tough player of the game. And I said to Lee McGriff, Lee, who do we have for the ramped tough player of the game? He goes, Mick, I think it's you. <laughs> 45-3, the Gators lose that game. The next year, they came in the swamp. And Larry Kennedy had a great weaving, winding interception. And the place went crazy. It was probably the loudest the swamp had ever been. Because in 1990, they added the north end zone. Well, this is the early season of 91. The place had never been like that before. It would get that way later that year in the FSU game, and it would get that way subsequent times in the Spurrier era. But to that point, it was the loudest that many people said they'd ever heard the swamp, Florida field, ever on Larry Kennedy's uh, interception return. Uh, in 92, we went back up there, and they beat us in heavy 
rain. And we beat them here in 93, but 94 we go up there, and about an hour before kickoff, heavy rain pouring again. And their stadium, their place went nuts. They were thinking it was just like 92 all over again. Heavy rain pouring, there's no chance. Well, what turned out was there was no chance Tennessee was going to score in the game because the Gators shut them out in 94, 31 to nothing. It's the last time Tennessee's ever been shut out in a game. We went to Neyland Stadium and shut out Tennessee, 31 to nothing. Then in 95, was another rain game, but what a game it was. Uh, really, the game, as we describe it, as being a tale of two halves because Tennessee had the Gators reeling. I mean, we were in a swamp, and uh, we were down 30-14. to 14. They scored right before the half, and I'm thinking, oh, there's, I was thinking this. There's plenty of time left in this game, but if things don't change, this could get real ugly. They could come in here and do to us what nobody's really done, and all of a sudden, things just changed. Danny started clicking. We scored on seven consecutive possessions. We scored 48 straight points and beat them 62-37. to 37. It was amazing how the game just changed, and it was a total blowout. The next year, we go up there and play them there, and I remember there was a midair fumble that we caught and ran in for a touchdown. We ended up scoring five touchdowns in the first 20 minutes of the game. It was 35-0 Florida with 10 minutes to go in the second quarter. Danny Werfel threw a touchdown pass on 4th and 10 from the 50-yard line. So in, in that time, the two quarters of 95, the first quarter of 96, and just a few minutes of the second quarter, a little over three quarters, we had outscored them 83-7. to It was unbelievable how we, we owned them. And, and, you know, then in, in 97 now, Peyton Manning comes into the swamp. He has never won a game against Florida. Didn't play much in the 94 game, but lose in 95, 96, and here in 97, this is the year. How many times have we heard, this is the year that the Gators are going to lose, whether it be to Kentucky or whether it be to Tennessee? And it was a, it was a great game. Uh, Tony George stepped in front of a, a Manning pass at the 11-yard line and ran it back 89 yards for a pick six in the game. Lawrence Wright delivered a crushing blow on Joey Kent, knocked the ball loose, about knocked him out of the game. One of the great hits of all time. That, that was the game where uh, Spurrier referred to, uh, you know, maybe Manning can win an MVP in the Citrus Bowl for the third straight year. He says, you, you can't spill citrus without UT. <laughs> we really were owning him. You know, though. Uh, the win to, and Steve would always say this, too. To the winner go the spoils, and we had won. But in 98, they turned the table on us. It was a year that Tennessee would eventually you know, win the national championship with, with Team Martin uh, at quarterback. And, and we're playing up there in a night game. And this was the year of 98, that the first year the overtime rules went into effect. And uh, we got first crack in overtime, and our kicker missed a field goal. And their kicker hit a field goal. And out they came, pouring onto the field, tore the goalpost down. If I remember it like it was yesterday, you know, losing an overtime game, the first one we'd ever played, up there on the road, 100,000-plus. It, it was brutal. But then we got him back in 99. That was the Alex Brown story. You know, he was in T. Martin's uh, back pocket the whole game, and we really owned that game. And those are just some of the games in that first decade that, that I was here in the 90s, and almost every one of them was storybook finishing, more or less, one way or the other. And most of them were all good benefiting Florida. And then it was back and forth yeah. during that stretch for a while, and it was kind of like whoever won that game had the inside track to win the East. When, when, when we turn the calendar to the to the new century, we, we play them up there in, in 2000. We're down three with about two minutes to go, and this was one of Jesse Palmer's great rallies. He, he took us down on a great drive, get down there, throw a pass to Jabbar Gaffney, caught it for about a millisecond. He had it. It was ruled a catch. Uh, they, uh, they, they knocked it out of his hand, but it was ruled a catch, and uh, we won that game. 2001 may have been for Florida the best team that never won a championship. That Gator team in 01 was loaded, and Rex Grossman was at the top of his game. 
And the great tragedy was 9-11. That happened on a Tuesday morning, 9-11, just uh, a few days in front of the Florida-Tennessee game. And the game was uh, rescheduled for the end of the year. There's no doubt in my mind, no question in my mind, the Gators would have stomped Tennessee in September in the swamp. But Tennessee got better, they got healthier, and it went to the end of the year, this game. And we had just beaten Florida State, uh, you know, the game before. And they came down, and, and they beat us. Uh, we just couldn't uh, we, we just couldn't tackle Travis Henry, as I remember. The, the kid from Frostproof ran wild. But we also had an injured Ernest Graham, because I mentioned the FSU game, Adam, the week before. That's the Darnell Dockett game. Went in there and, and really wrecked Ernest Graham's knee. Just a thuggish move. And, and Graham was not really up to par. And uh, there's no question we win the game September. And in 2006, I remember, we, we trailed in this game. It was, I think it was 17-6 to 6 we were trailing. Looked like it could be curtains for us again. But we rallied, and uh, I'll be darned if we didn't pull that one out, won that game 21-20. to 20. So another cliffhanger and another game that, that Tennessee had a lead on us that they couldn't hold. You know, they're talking about the blue out here for this year. Well, we had a blue out in 07, but the blue out in 07 was a blowout because we beat them 59-20. to 20. Tebow, at the height of his career, would win the Heisman Trophy that year, and he was just phenomenal. But but Percy Harvin, I remember, Tebow threw him a little pass and only, as only Percy could do. That was one of those, oh, mercy, Percy runs. 49 yards, weaving his way through, breaking tackles, and it was just phenomenal. I think he had 120 yards receiving in that game, and uh, we steamrolled him. You mentioned Tebow and what he did in 2007, but really – the start of the Tebow legend came in that 06 game when he came in and got all those short yardage situations, yeah. especially the fourth down. Yeah, game. he was. Now, this was uh, Chris Leak's team. He was the quarterback, and, and he was the guy that, that, that you know would set so many Florida passing records. But the package of plays for Tebow was so significant in that you talk about a, a team that switches up quarterbacks. These were two totally different styled guys, and they weren't, they weren't like the same guy reincarnated. I mean, Tebow, with his bruising effort, would just take the ball and just run almost – up the A-gap or right right behind the center, fourth and one, whatever it was. And he, he did that against Tennessee, and it was it was just unbelievable because almost, you know, initially you think, wow, it's pretty, you know, hope he can make it. And then he made a few, and then it got to be where everybody in the ballpark, every ballpark knew what the play was going to be, and they rarely stopped him, and even though it was no surprise anymore. It's kind of like when Tim initiated the, the first jump pass that was successful. After a while, you know, they, you know it was still exciting. But uh, he did he did throw an interception on a jump pass later in his career because the, kind of the element of surprise was was worn off a little bit. But uh, no, Tebow and uh, he he really he really reveled in beating Tennessee perhaps as much as, as Spurrier did. You heard Mick mention some of the wild showdowns in the '90s, and that's where we go for this week's Gator Tales Trivia Challenge. This week's honorary Mister Two Bits is former All American Alex Brown who had one of the great individual defensive performances of all time against the Vols in 1999. Mick talked about Brown chasing T. Martin all over the field, but it's up to you to tell us how many sacks Alex Brown had in that game. Email your answers to gatorspodcast at gmail.com or tweet them at gatorspodcast, and one randomly selected winner will receive a $25 gift certificate to the online Gator Sports Shop. Last week's question was, What year did Florida beat Tennessee for the first time? The answer was 1954, and our randomly selected winner was Thomas N. Congrats to Thomas, and if you're playing along this week, may the odds be ever in your favor. Moving on, Florida's secondary rebounded from a disappointing performance against ECU with a lockdown effort against the Wildcats, 
holding quarterback Patrick Tolles to just 8 out of 24 completions for 126 yards and 2 interceptions. I asked redshirt sophomore defensive back Nick Washington what the key was to the turnaround. We know that coming into Kentucky that we um, had to be you know, on our P's and Q's and going into practice for Kentucky, we uh, sharpened everything up, sharpened everything in the meeting rooms, took everything, you know, nothing lightly, everything very, very serious. And we just know that we had to make uh, a big improvement. I know there was that players only meeting before that as well. How much of an impact did you feel like that had on the improved performance? The players only meeting had the biggest um, impact on our performance because that's when we uh, started holding each other accountable for everything that we do. You know, we're giving each other constructive criticism. So, you know, it kind of helped us in the long run. Patrick Tolles had such a big game in the Swamp last year. To go up there and limit him to only eight completions and under 125 yards, what did you feel like the biggest differences were? We came in that week, you know, more prepared. We were holding each other more accountable. Coaches had a great defensive scheme, you know, defensive line. They uh, got a great pass rush, you know, so he, he was kind of rushed and pressured into throwing passes, and we just covered well in the back end. Looking at Tennessee coming up, what have you seen from them on film that really stands out? They've got their quarterback that likes to run a little bit. They've got a big back, Jalen Hurd and uh, Alvin Kamara, and then uh, on the outside, they got some tall wide receivers. They had some big guys, three guys at 6'3 or taller at wide receiver. What challenges do those kind of receivers present to you guys? We just got to get ready for, you know, fades and um, jump balls where they feel like they can uh, make a play on it. One of the things that Tennessee has been really focused on is trying to end this streak. And after beating Kentucky and continuing that streak, how much talk is there in the locker room about continuing this winning streak over Tennessee? We talk about um, holding streaks and keeping it alive, so... I was just starting to paint a new picture. How much does that relate to kind of the bigger picture of Florida football and knowing that a 10-year streak means that so many guys before you came through and kept that alive? How accountable are you to almost the history of the program and the guys that came before you? Uh, you know, we just want to make those who play before us proud. So uh, that comes into, you know, like last week being Kentucky, like, we know that the guys before us who beat Kentucky are proud of us, so we want to do the same thing this week. I asked Quincy Wilson this last week, so I'll give you the same thing. If you could pick three wide receivers from throughout history, any era, who would they be that you'd want to cover? Jerry Rice would be one of them. He's one of the best. Calvin Johnson and uh, Randy Moss. I like Randy Moss. Who are some players you really look up to? You know, the Seahawks defense, all of them in general, they have a really good defense. You know, they're very competitive, and just like they hold each other accountable – on the back end, we try to hold each other accountable, and that's who I like to win my game after. You're playing the Volunteers this weekend, so I ask you, what is the best thing you've ever volunteered for? Probably at Westwood Middle School. I uh, volunteered with a class of fifth graders and one of my special friends named Logan. That was a good time. I did it for the whole school year, actually. You play safety. What is the most dangerous thing that you have ever done? I wrestled with some alligators. Really? I wrestled with alligators, yeah. Where did you do that, and, and what inspired you to wrestle an alligator? I mean, it was uh, at a friend's, and he wasn't too big. He was only like seven feet long. And so, <laughs> no problem. Why yeah, not? Yeah. And we, we were good. We had, him, we had him nice and taped up, so we just, you know, I got out there and picked him up and all those fun things. Did you win? Oh, I won. I won for sure. <laughs> You're still here, so yes, you did win. Yeah, but I still have all my limbs, so we're good. <laughs> You've been clocked at a 4-4-8 in your 40-yard dash. If you were putting together a relay team, who would the other three guys be? Actually, no, I go all DBs. All DBs. All DBs. So Which I, ones? Vern, Brian Poole, and uh, Marcus May or Keanu Neal, one of the two. Those are the fastest guys you can come up with? That's all DBs. All speed team? All speed team. DBU, okay. DBU. You picked UF over a lot of different schools, really good schools. Alabama, Auburn, Florida State. 
What made Florida the place for you? Um, I just feel like, you know, it's, it's the University of Florida, so who doesn't want to be a Gator? That's how I see it. Final question for you. Strangest pregame ritual? I eat spaghetti without the sauce, just noodles. Just plain spaghetti? Just plain spaghetti. No meatballs, no sauce. Just what about like butter or something to make it go down easier? Nah, just spaghetti. Just, just straight up plain spaghetti? Just straight up noodles. Every game, no matter what? Every game, no matter what. Well, hope you have a lot of spaghetti before Tennessee this weekend. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks again to Nick Washington. If the secondary was one of the known quantities for Florida coming into this season, certainly the offensive line was one of the biggest question marks. Injuries and graduation left Florida incredibly thin up front during the spring, but the numbers increased dramatically for the fall and gave offensive line coach Mike Summers a full but inexperienced deck to work with. The lone coaching holdover of the Muschamp era spoke with Jeff Cardozo about the challenges of building a brand new O-line. It's been a long uh, summer trying to develop the guys that we had remaining from last year's team with all the defections that we had, and we lost an awful lot of starts out of those guys that are now playing in the NFL. And so the guys that were returning, plus these new freshmen that we've added to this group, uh, have had to come together to form this offensive line. And, And certainly there was a lot of anxiety on my part and everyone else's about uh, so many young players and so many first-time starters, and um, and rightfully so because the offensive line is a place where uh, experience matters. Uh, being there uh, down after down, year after year, knowing what this league is like and knowing how to prepare for defenses in the SEC is invaluable. You can't replace that experience. And so having to fight that battle has been challenging, but it's also been motivating. Uh, we've got some really great young talented players in there that are working hard to to learn their skill and and learn how to play each weekend in this conference mixed in with some guys that were returned that that do understand what's going on and so the progress that we've made has been to put the group together and then also twofold to get the younger guys some playing time and so through the first three games we've been able to do that um it 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 has been steady progress I've, i've been pleased with Uh, the direction that we've gone. But having said that, that's not to mean that we are where we need to be. And and we know that um, as the season goes on and the the challenges get tougher, um, we're going to face things that these guys have not seen before. And so some of those challenges we'll meet and handle and some of them we won't. We just have to keep stay the course and continue to get better. So with that, I'm sure there's been a lot of teachable moments. How have these guys accepted what you're trying to to get them and, and have they gone out and implemented those? You know, that's been the most motivating part for me is their attitude towards what we're doing and how they're being taught and, and just their eagerness to learn is, is a real motivating aspect for a coach. You know, you've got guys that want to learn and they, they need you to show them what to do and how to do it. And then to have them try and do everything they can to, to do what you ask them to do has been a great situation. You know, the offensive line is a, a family within the team. These guys hang out together. They, they do everything that they do, they do as a group. And, and so that camaraderie is what we, we take with us on the field. And, and the centers work with the guards and the guards work with the tackles. And when we have this rolling, it'll be a group of five guys that all think and act and react as one, and that's what we're working towards. In an ideal world, do you like to have five set guys or six or seven? What, what is that number to, to try to solidify things? Well, I think unlike a lot of positions, it's, 
it's a difficult position to continually change up in, in terms of rotations or, or guys moving from guard to tackle or, or whatever the movement might be. You would like to be able to, to dial in on five or six guys and let them get comfortable playing with each other. We're not in that situation this year. A big part of the component is to try and develop the younger players. So those younger guys that have been getting reps will continue to do that. And then it's a constant search to find the right, best five guys. And so as we continue to go through the season, we'll continue that battle and, and work hard as a coaching staff to get the, the right guys on the field as best we can, as well as bringing these younger guys along so that by the end of the season, they do have experience heading into next year. And speaking of younger guys and experience, I think at one point last week, you had three freshmen out there. So maybe that's why some of those hairs are a little grayer this week. How, how they handled it, rode on the situation for the first time. And then it looked like there was some silent stuff too. The guards telling the center when to snap it. How, how do you think that went? We, we knew that there was going to be a great atmosphere at Kentucky with uh, crowd noise and all of that. Our snap counts were uh, directed through the guard, and, and that's always an issue a lot of times, first-time road games and that. We, we handled that really well. Just the, the travel, the airplane, the hotel, all of that stuff for the first time, I thought the guys really did a great job. And, you know, Coach McElwain gets the credit for that because of how we've prepared at practice uh, what we do uh, in the whole program is designed so that we can um, take those situations that sometimes are chaotic and find order in that and not lose our focus. You know, those guys on the sideline have been so attentive and so focused on what we're doing and, and not a lot of gazing off into the crowd and up at the scoreboard. It's It's been a really good situation. So looking ahead to Tennessee, what are some of the things they're going to try to do to uh, to get to the quarterback? Well, Tennessee's got a really good defensive front, and they, they've got two ends that can really rush the passer. Uh, their front seven guys are, are always good, and, and they are this year. And so it'll be a huge challenge for us. Um, we're we're going to try and do everything we can offensively to try and disrupt some of their tempo and, and some of the things that they would like to do. But in the end, it's going to come down to some one-on-one -on -one battles, and, and we're going to have to win those battles to be successful. And to be honest with you, that's what every game is going to come down to. And, and we'll win some of those, and we won't win some of them. But um, as long as we continue to fight hard and get better and compete, you know, I feel good about what we're doing, and I feel good about these guys and how they're going to play. Finally today, we go in-depth on Rocky Top. Tennessee enters the Swamp 2-1 and one on the year, including blowout wins over Bowling Green and Western Carolina, sandwiched around a tough triple overtime loss to Oklahoma. But the buzz surrounding Tennessee throughout the offseason was that the Vols were ready to have a breakout year in 2015, and Gators' own senior writer Scott Carter says there are a number of reasons to explain the hype. A lot of that talk... It's probably because they have a quarterback now, Josh Dobbs, who, who took over last year midseason, and he kind of solidified that position for Tennessee. And, you know, going into this year, they're expecting a lot out of him. So anytime you find that quarterback first, that helps uh, kind of answer some questions about your team. And Butch Jones is really the, the key to this whole idea that Tennessee is back. He's in his third year, and that's about the time that a, a new coach usually needs to really – place his identity on a program and he's got the fans excited again up there he's starting to get the kind of players that Tennessee was known for recruiting when they were really successful and I think in time you're going to see you know Tennessee surge back up the SEC standings this is a team offensively um, 
you know, their quarterback gets this thing going. He takes care of the football. He makes great decisions for them offensively. Obviously, the two running backs, uh, you know, Hurd and Kamara, they're what you expect in this league, and, and they're going to play a long time uh, beyond this league. They're, they're, they're really, really good players. We've got to be really good tacklers this week and hopefully not give them a you know, bunch of gaping holes because they can hurt you and they can finish. Tennessee's got the second-best scoring offense in the SEC, and the theme with them is big. Big running backs, big wide receivers, that's the name of their game. Yeah, it is, Adam, and it starts in the backfield. Uh, Jalen Hurd, a 6'4", 240-pound running back. That's big, even by SEC standards. The Gators' defensive line got it done at Kentucky, but Hurd's a different kind of back. They have not faced maybe that big of a back this year, and Tennessee operates around him a lot in the running game. But then they change a the pace. Alvin Kamara, a smaller back, a little speedier, he had a big game last week, rushed for a touchdown, also had a punt return for a touchdown. First player to do that at Tennessee since Stanley Morgan, 1975, way before your time. Don't Adam. remember that one very well. <laughs> but uh, one thing, uh, when you look at the matchup in the passing game, the Gators are known for their big corners, and not necessarily Vernon Hargraves, but Quincy Wilson, the safeties, Marcus May, Brian Poole, Keanu Neal, all are pretty big and physical guys. Well, Tennessee's going to counter that with their starting receivers, three of them, all 6'3 or bigger. Obviously, the guy that most people probably know about there is Marquez North, 6'3", 229. Then you got Josh Malone plus Jawan Jennings. And then the guy named Pig Howard, all 5'8 of him. But he's also a big part of what they do in the passing game. If you look at the overall stats, Tennessee's not that impressive defensively, and especially with the loss of Kurt Majid at linebacker, their emotional leader, that was a big hit. But they do have a lot of playmakers individually that are making some noise. Yeah, they do, Adam. Uh, you know, you lose a player like Majit, it forces other players to step up. And so far, a couple of names that stick out, Derek Barnett, uh, defensive end. This guy had a huge game, 21 tackles against Oklahoma. So no doubt his name will probably be called some on Saturday. Jalen Reeves-Maben, a uh, defensive tackle, he had 15 tackles in that Oklahoma game. And his secondary, Todd Kelly Jr., a guy who picked off a couple against Oklahoma. So those are the guys that have been the playmakers so far for them early in the season. But it is a unit that is still kind of trying to probably gel without Majit, who was such an important part of what they do defensively from linebacker position. And it forced them to uh, switch some things up. They're young up front. And yet they're playing a lot of guys, and those guys are making plays. And, you know, I attribute that to Steve Stripling, their D-line coach, uh, who I was with at, at Louisville and Michigan State, one of the best in the business. And you can tell how disciplined they play up front and how hard they play up front. They do a great job there. Through the first couple games this season, a lot of people were critical of the defensive line performance, saying they weren't getting enough pressure. And I'm not sure if their ears were ringing or not, but they came through in a huge way against Kentucky and probably the biggest reason that Florida won the game. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Patrick Tolles would disagree. You know, John Bullard perhaps had his best game at Florida. He had two sacks, but also was just making plays inside the line there on a couple of runs late where you looked like there was a hole there and all of a sudden he closed it off. Alex McAllister had two sacks. Six sacks as a team, and, you know, when you look at this defensive line, you knew they had depth and talent, but now it seems like they're really starting to kind of emerge as playmakers. And, and I think so far, you know, Bullard, McAllister, Joey Ivey, who had a real big game against East Carolina, Taven Bryan, Caleb Brantley, all these guys, it seems they're starting to get their name called regularly. So without question, their play, if they can put the kind of pressure on Dobbs that they did uh, tolls, that's going to be a good sign for the Florida defense. Where do you see this matchup being decided? 
from Florida's perspective, I think one thing that when you're dealing with a young quarterback like Will Greer last week in Kentucky, he needs more help in the running game. He was the leading rusher for the Gators at Kentucky. And, you know, they're going to have to start getting more push from the offensive line up front to open some holes for, you know, Kevin Taylor or whether it's Jordan Scarlett or Jordan Cronkite to help out. And it also goes back to Greer. McElwain wants to see him maybe take a little more time and read his progressions before he takes off running. So I, I think it, for them it's just getting the offensive line in a better rhythm getting Will Greer in a better rhythm and really using what weapons he has around him more than maybe trying to do so much with his feet. Tennessee side, I mean, I, I think, you know, Josh Dobbs, while he's not being asked to maybe pass for 300 yards a game, I think they would probably looking for him to have a big game. He has shown the ability to do that, but so far they're, they're getting a lot of production across the board. But with Florida's defense and the way they played last week at Kentucky, I mean, it's going to be imperative for Tennessee to find some big pass plays maybe to get the ball rolling down the field. And that's all we have for this week's episode of Gator Tales. Remember to submit your trivia answers to GatorsPodcast at gmail.com or tweet them at GatorsPodcast and use those same outlets to reach out and let us know what you think of Gator Tales and what you'd like to hear in the future. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher and give us a review. Now it's on to game day. Will Florida set a new record in this great rivalry with an 11th straight win? Find out on Saturday at 3.30 in the Swamp. And if you can't make it to Gainesville, watch live on CBS or listen on the Gator IMG Sports Network. Our next podcast will be available next Thursday and will preview Ole Miss's first trip to Gainesville since the 2008 game that led to the legendary promise speech delivered by Tim Tebow. You can be sure that will come up in next week's show, so join us for Gator Tales. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the Swamp.